Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And it's wonderful to welcome back with us to explore parasha Vaera today, Professor Gary Rensberg who serves as the Blanche and Irving Laurie Professor of Jewish History in the Department of Jewish Studies at Rutgers University. He is the author of numerous articles and also plenty of books, including How the Bible is Written and uh, edited with a number of others, Did I Not Bring Israel Out of Egypt? And Professor Rensberg, it's wonderful. I know you join us today from holiday, part part working too, but from Provence, and we're truly grateful that that you do that. Warm welcome again. Thank you, Simon. And to join you in the technology, no matter where we are in the world. In this case, yes, here we are in Provence, and you in London. Good to see you. Fantastic. Maybe to launch in, what do you make of the line from? God following Moses's objection to speaking to Pharaoh for a second time from Exodus 7 1 where we have it the line as follows see I have set you as a God to Pharaoh and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet a truly enigmatic line that has suddenly troubled the commentators immensely look forward to hearing your take, and I wonder what Provence is throwing on that line. Listen, a wonderful um, pasuk, just a fantastic passage in this week's parish. And I'm glad that you translated the word Elohim there, as you read it in English, as God, because everybody attempts to stand on their head and try to explain the word Elohim away, but Elohim means God pure and simple. How do we explain this? The entire story of the Exodus, the greater narrative, which spans three or even four parashot, is imbued with all sorts of themes and motifs and reflections of ancient Egyptian culture and religion. And this is a key one. Of all the peoples in the ancient world, only the Egyptians believed that their king, the pharaoh, was divine. So if you go elsewhere to Canaan or to Babylon or any of the other cultures of the ancient world, the kings might have been the human agents of the gods responsible for their societies on earth, but they weren't considered divine. In Egypt, the pharaoh was considered divine. And accordingly, with Moses now having to go before pharaoh, I like to use the analogy of the contemporary world, our contemporary world, of a summit conference. There's going to be a summit conference between Pharaoh and Moses. And in such a conference, if country X sends their head of state, well, then country Y has to send their head of state or head of government as well. In the good old days of the Cold War, if the Soviet Union sent uh, Khrushchev or Brezhnev or whoever it was, the U.S. then had to send the president. But if the Soviet Union was going to send their foreign minister, then the U.S. would send its area of state and ditto. And the G7 meets today 
It's all of the the leaders of those countries. But sometimes you might just have the finance ministers meeting and so they meet. So you cannot have the Pharaoh appearing in the summit conference in a divine status and Moses appearing in less of a status. And so therefore, for this one occasion, God elevates Moses to the level of the divine. Now this goes against all the theology of the Bible, but for the exigency of the moment, yes, a human can become divine. The highest level that anybody can achieve in the biblical worldview is that of prophet. And of course, Moses is the prophet par excellence. The second tier is priest, is Kohen. And of course, that is fulfilled throughout the Torah by Aaron, even if he hasn't by this point been given that title. Back in chapter four, he's called Levi, but he hasn't had the word Kohen attached to him yet. And so both in chapter four, last week's parsha, atop Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, and here in chapter seven, verse one, God elevates Moses to the level of the divine. I call this temporary promotion. And Aaron is promoted as well from the level of priest to Navi. He's called the Navi here in chapter verse one. It's a remarkable story. It just showed a remarkable passage. It just shows the extent to which the biblical writers were at home with all Egyptian material. And so there's your summit conference. Moses is definitely going to go as an Elohim before Pharaoh. Wonderful. Thank you. And I suppose this really sets us up for all that is to follow. Maybe before we come to the plagues, we have that instance in which the staff of Moses is transformed into a crocodile. How important is Egyptian culture to really the understanding of the significance of this transformation. Once again, I have to say thank you for translating correctly because everybody once again is confounded with the word tanin when Moses and Aaron now appear before Pharaoh in the court. And for reasons it's not clear, it's actually called Aaron's staff at this point, but in any case, it turns into a tanin, which I render as crocodile. Now, again, back on, on Mount Chorev, on uh, equals Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 4, Moses' staff was turned into a nachash, which clearly means snake. Here, it's a, it's a different creature, and it turns into a tanin, that is to say, a crocodile. I like to show, like to talk about the two graphical settings, right? Out there in the Sinai, there are no crocodiles, but there are plenty of snakes in the desert. So when Moses does it there, it becomes a snake, that's fine. But now we're on the banks of the Nile in the palace of the Pharaoh. And so how much more impressive to have the staff turned into a crocodile. There's all manner of things happening here. There, the Egyptians love to tell tales and stories. In fact, we should just say as an aside, ancient Egypt is where prose literature for the sake of reading actually begins. The things that you and I take for granted and all of our listeners take for granted, we pick up a book fiction, historical fiction, novel, nonfiction, whatever, and we read it for enlightenment, education, but also entertainment. The Egyptians are the ones who actually created such stories, not to glorify this or particular deity or king or something like that, which you get in some of the other literatures of the ancient world. And one of these very important papyrus texts called Papyrus Westcar includes a story, a series of stories about the Egyptian magicians. And in one of them, the magician is able to take a wax crocodile and turn it into a living crocodile. And then by taking hold of it, turning it back into the wax crocodile, the 
inanimate becomes the animate back to the inanimate. So again, when the biblical story refers to the staff, in this case, the staff of Aaron in chapter seven, turning into a crocodile, it's just following the culture of Egypt. And the proof of that, and of course, I put proof now in quotation marks, the proof of that is the Egyptian magicians are able to do the same thing. As soon as Aaron performs his task, the Egyptian magicians, the Khartoumim, are able to do the same. Now, of course, Aaron's staff eats their staffs, which is to say his crocodile eats their crocodiles. But the fact that the Khartoumim of Egypt, these magician priests, or however we want to translate that term, it's an Egyptian word that appears in Hebrew there, are able to do this is, again, proof, quote unquote, of, of what is real, quote unquote, in Egyptian literature. So maybe before we approach the plagues, last week with Professor Ehrlich, we discussed uh, the Exodus as either legend, allegory, questioning the history. I wonder really what you see the plagues as being between those different categories. And a wonderful podcast with my friend and colleague, Carl Ehrlich. So thanks for having him on. And it's a bit of all of that. I think the number one thing to my mind, let's point out the following. The plagues are natural occurrences, which are known in Egypt. So we have all sorts of documentation. And of course, the Bible, it doesn't mean the river turns to blood, plague number one. But we, the Egyptians actually refer, they actually use the word blood to this occurring due to the buildup of silt during the inundation as the banks of the Nile fall into the streaming water or perhaps red algae, both have been suggested. I'm not saying there's a scientific basis for these plagues, but I just want to point these things out. Ancient writers, including Herodotus, talk about gnats and flies being a, a part of Egyptian culture. And the darkness, the ninth plague, that'll be next week's part, which can be felt for three days. These are the sandstorms of Egypt. And you may want to go back and watch that remarkable film, The English Patient, where such a scene is portrayed. So there is a reality that, to some extent to these plagues. But of course, the biblical text isn't just showing you what can happen in Egypt from a naturalist perspective. To my mind, these are most importantly attacks on the Egyptian deities. And in fact, you get that statement. Again, it'll be in next week's parasha in chapter 12, that God sends uh, Shvatim judgments against all the gods of Egypt, Elohei Mitzrayim. So that's what's going on in these plays. The Nile, uh, unclear whether the Nile was considered a deity or not, but there is this aspect to the Nile call. So I'm going now counting through one, two, three. The frog goddess, Heket, is the goddess of life. So when all the frogs die uh, in plague number two, this is an attack on the Egyptian goddess of life. And you go on and on with that. If you look at plague number five, Dever, which attacks the cattle, well, there are various Egyptian deities which are, were represented either as male bulls or female cows, Hathor, for example, the cow, uh, Apis, the bull. And so these are attacks on the Egyptian deities or on the priests themselves, as you get with number six. Again, Herodotus, the Greek historian who visited Egypt and devoted an entire book of his histories to the culture of Egypt, tells us that the Egyptian priests shaved every day their skin totally so that they were hairless, these male priests, so that they would be in a state of purity so they could operate in the temples. If they had boils, the shechin of plague number six, or were infested with lice, if you go back to plague number three, they would be rendered impure, would be unable to operate in the temples. And the whole 
a balance of life could collapse in Egypt. So the biblical story is showing, again, the remarkable, remarkable knowledge of Egyptian culture. So that's how I view the plagues, as attacks on the deities, but also here and there, the priests as well. So you're really suggesting it's a kind of polemic against the Egyptian culture and religion of the time. Yes, I think if you asked an ancient Israelite, they would say, wow, Egypt is just a remarkable place. They are so far advanced in engineering, in medicine. We have medical texts, including surgical texts from Egypt. It's just remarkable. You, Whatever you want, you can find in ancient Egypt, irrigation techniques, the breadbasket of the ancient world with the amount of grain they were able to produce and so on. So I think any ancient Israelite would have looked at Egypt with some sort of awe and wonder as the great society. Remember, Egypt was, uh, Israel was a fledgling culture and still very much nomadic or semi-nomadic, trying to create a, a whole new way of looking at the world. But as far as culture is concerned, Egypt was just quite remarkable. And this was obviously known. Anybody who just walks to Egypt down to the present day, visits the country, sees the wonders of three, four a thousand years ago. But the biblical author is saying, that's all well and good, Egypt, but your theology is misguided, right? And there is the oneness to God. There is a God who has a concern for humanity. God judges the world in a moral capacity, not through whim, and, and has a close relationship with humankind. That's what the biblical story is doing here. And how do you see the distinction that is made between the Egyptian magician's reproduction of some of the plagues, and then the plagues which God sends. So the, the, this takes us back to, this brings us to the first three plagues. So when Moses or Moses and Aaron turned the Nile into blood, the Egyptian magicians are able to do the same. Now, you may say to yourself, well, this is totally illogical because of all the water of Egypt had been turned into blood. How could they do then do the same? But don't impose Aristotelian logic on the story. They just did it, right? And then ditto with the frogs, right? Moses and Aaron bring frogs. Well, the Egyptian magicians can bring frogs as well. There may be a bit of humor here, right? If they were really good, they would remove the frogs. But in their desire to do, to replicate the actions of Moses and Aaron, they actually bring more frogs. So they're able to do these things, again, because the Egyptian texts, although not in these two cases specifically, refer to the wonders that the magicians are able to do. And then in the third instance, plague number three of the lice, the Egyptian magicians are unable to do this. They are unable to replicate it. So not only is it a contest between the God of Israel and the gods, plural, of Egypt, as I implied, and I'll state explicitly now, it's also a little bit of a contest between Moses and Aaron on the one hand and the magicians of Egypt on the other. And Moses and Aaron obviously win and the magicians disappear until their cameo appearance, as I like to call it in Plague 6, where they have to be stricken with the shechin, the boils, for the reasons I stated a few moments ago. But then there's this other key aspect to it. When the Egyptian magicians do what they do, the biblical text says they did thus or they did this, they were able to do this, Belatehem or Belahatehem, through their magic spells. They had to speak the words to allow the action to occur. Now, for us today, magic is purely a 
little entertainment feature for children's birthday parties and so on. But we still have the magic word, the abracadabra kind of things that the magician has to say. And the, you know, the magician will play at the birthday party and the trick won't work. And then the children will say, you didn't say the magic word. You have to speak those magic words for the action to occur. And this is, again, a consonant with these ancient Egyptian texts, which deal with the, the magicians, including the one I referred to earlier. When this magician priest turns the wax crocodile into a living crocodile, he says his magic words first, and then the action occurs. That's consistent with what you're seeing in the biblical story not Moses and Aaron. There is no such thing as magic in the world. Magic is, again, part of this idea of the ancient Egyptians and others in the ancient world. Moses and Aaron are able to do what they are able to accomplish because they have the power of God. God alone is what gives this who or gives them the power to do what they do. There's no need to resort to abracadabra-like saying to bring about the actions. And that's consistent in the story there. So it's really in light of the encounter with the engagement with Egyptian tradition that the Israelite way is that comes to be. I really wonder, obviously, the plagues we encounter, of course, in this week's parasha. We read about them, of course, in Seder gatherings and so on. What, though, are the kind of longer lasting elements of Israelite encounter with Egypt, out of which Jewish theology ultimately comes to be known as we know it today or later on? That's the great big question. That's wonderful. And of course, I've already given some response to that, and that is the engagement with Egypt can be fine. You can admire its cultural, scientific, architectural, etc. achievements. But the, the biblical text is in every, in every page of the Bible, in Genesis, in Exodus, all the way through, in Psalms, or in the prophets, wherever you go, it is forging a new path. And that's really crucial here. And you sometimes have to read between the lines, and I'm sure you'll like that reference. to understand Thank you. A shameless plug. That's, uh, that's, that's great. Uh, the, the, Again, the, forging a new path, but the still depends on where it has come from. And as I reflect upon your question here, I would say the following, which I think is truly important. And if I can, this will be my own personal theology or my own personal approach to, to, to Judaism. Given all of the Egyptian material that's in the biblical text or underlying the biblical text, which we've talked about in the last 20 minutes or so, it demonstrates that the people of Israel did not live in a vacuum. And of course, the Jewish people have never lived in a vacuum. We have always engaged with the culture around us. We take what's good from the culture around us, and we may not, we may reject or alter or something, those elements of that culture, which we might find objectionable. And you see this from the very beginning of the biblical story. The great story, of course, is the story of the Exodus. The Israelites were not living in their own little vacuum. They engaged with the greater society of Egypt. It's clear from the biblical text that the text, the author, the educated readership knew quite a bit about Egypt. Otherwise, the items we've been talking about would not resonate with, with these people. And that's true of wherever the Jewish people have, have gone. 
in their 3,000 plus history. So when you go off into Babylonian exile towards the latter parts of the Bible, we know that Jews are engaging with Babylonian culture, and we have good archaeological evidence for that now. And ditto with the Greek cult, Persian culture, Greek culture, Roman culture, Islamic culture later on. And even in Christian Europe, where the fate of Jews was not always kind, but Jews always engage with the culture around them. And uh, certainly you and the UK and I as an American, we, we certainly do that in our home countries, understanding the benefits of the cultures that we in which we live. And I think that's a big takeaway point. If I can use just the little bit of material that we have in this week's parasha as a springboard to remind people of this larger picture of Jewish history, it doesn't necessarily speak directly to the Jewish theology portion of your question, but it's all interrelated in my mind. Professor Rensberg, thank you so much for sharing with us today and for much food for thought and drawing the bigger picture too and look forward to seeing plenty more of those trends as we continue our journey through Shemot. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Simon, here on Jewish Quest Between the Lines. Thank you again for hosting. Wonderful. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do check out more of our exciting content we have for you on our mothership, jewishquest.org. And we very much look forward to meeting again next week.